This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. If it's your first time here, welcome. My name is Jake. For those of you returning, welcome back. Uh, we're switching up the format of the show just a tad bit moving forward, but don't worry, it's still the same old show. On this episode, we sat down with a good friend, Alex Fleming, with Deloitte. Throughout his career as a management consultant, he's been mostly focused on working with numerous oil field service companies. So he brought a really unique and insightful perspective into our conversation about how the oil field services sector has been and will continue to be impacted by the current state of our industry. But really quickly, before we get to that, this episode is brought to you by Task. Now, as many of you know, I've worked with numerous EMPs throughout my career. I think everyone agreed that the operating game is rather chaotic at times and definitely a logistical nightmare. There are a million things that have to be done on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. And once you factor in failures and downtime, it creates a never-ending list of things that have to be completed in a certain order. If you listen to episode 54, we dive deep into how Task is a simple yet modern approach to production optimization. Many operators today are using a lot of buzzwords around machine learning and AI and things of the sort, but have overlooked getting back to the basics of simple organization. What I like about Task is they've taken a unique approach to production optimization by focusing on task management, hence the name, right? By going back to the basics, it allows you to know what everyone's working on, automatically assign tasks, and enables you to not let things slip through the cracks. So we're super excited to see what the guys at Task are creating. You can check them out at taskinc.com. That's T-A-S-Q-I-N-C.com. Or we've put their contact info in the show notes below if you'd like to reach out to them directly. What is going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. We've missed you guys. Okay, we only missed like one episode. but Yeah, we missed one episode last week. We've been, been slacking a little bit, missing an episode, but... It's crazy. We got a lot lined up for January, but December, like the holiday season, everyone just gets busy. This whole whole industry shuts down for the holidays. No, even podcasts. No one wants to record podcasts in the holiday season. So today, though, we got a good one. We got my good friend, Alex Fleming, Senior Manager of Oil and Gas Operations for Deloitte. Alex, thanks for coming on, man. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So if you guys have attended Energy Tech Night in the past, Alex, I think you were on one of the first panels that we ever, I think it was Energy Tech Night 1. Yeah, I think I, I was on the panel with uh, the guy from Hess and yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Come yeah, on, that was a good one. and I think Roland too. Oh yeah, yeah, Roland was on there too. Yeah. Man. That was a good, good panel. Some news coming soon with Roland. Yeah. So Alex, I think you've got, I mean, I, I remember when I first, Alex reached out to me, I looked at his LinkedIn resume, I was like, man, this guy seems like he knows everything about everything. So... I mean, is that an try, accurate I assumption? Not, I try not to start the conversation with that. <laughs> My name's I, Alex, and I know everything about everything. You know that that doesn't work well for consultants usually, right? <laughs> I, I would say that I have I have in my life I have been a lifetime learner, so I've I've spent a lot of time educating myself over over my lifetime in a lot of different things. Yeah. So your your position at Deloitte, if I'm not mistaken, you have right now your main focus is helping oil field services. Is that correct? That's correct. I've spent most of my my ten years in consulting focused probably half on oil field services and half on E and P companies. And, you know, I dabbled in a little bit of midstream, you know, some you know, some other associated industries, specialty chemicals, but all of them connected to the oil and gas value chain. At my time at Deloitte for the last year and a half or so, I've been 
really deep into the oil field services work, but you know, been all over the industry. Yeah, I'm actually pretty excited about this episode because you know, recently we had Dan Pickering on and talked about kind of the climate of ENPs and the state that they're in. So it'll be interesting to talk about the OFS side. Obviously, we've had some OFS companies here on the show, but we haven't gone into you know their startups, right? We haven't mm-hmm. gone into what's it looking like for OFS and. You know, I'm sure it's a it's it's a tough industry uh, or a tough game right now. But a little bit about your background. How did you how did you get started consulting at Deloitte, and what kind of led you up to where you are today? Well, so I grew up. I mean, I guess we're starting at the the beginning. I grew up mostly in Colorado and Arizona. You know, I was a wild child, so my parents sent me off to boarding school when I was like 13. And <laughs> it's much better when he's a thousand miles away. And so, what's that like? Because I've been I was looking at boarding schools, and I was like, man. I, we just send your kid off to boarding school and like, how, how did you feel from, so from being the kid? Like, did I you feel was thinking the same thing? This <laughs> I was watching some documentary and they were sent, they sent their kid off to boarding school too. And I was like, man, if my kid's a little shit, I'm sending his ass to boarding school. <laughs> no, it was actually my choice. So I did, I did get the option of going local, but I, I went to a pretty cool boarding school, one of the, one of the New England boarding schools. And so I was kind of like the scholarship kid and, you know, when I, you know, it was kind of funny back, well, back then I, I showed up my first day and, you know, you almost get run over by the limo coming from Manhattan to drop the kids off. And, <laughs> you know, then Donald Trump drops off his daughter and, you know, it's kind of like, okay, this is going to be a different place <laughs> than Colorado. But I really- That sounds like Ivy League school for kids. Not, I think boarding school, I think military school. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think you're going to be like, you know, in bunks in a gigantic squad bay and up at three <laughs> o'clock in the morning and they make you run and then they- it's like those shows where they have the spoiled kids and they take them to jail and yeah. like show them that. That's that's what I imagined boarding school was like. But apparently that's not it. That is, it's a lot more like, you know, kind of like a, a little version of college and generally more expensive. So my, you know, I did boarding school, really enjoyed it, you know, got out on my own. And I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. I don't want to go, you know, live home again. <laughs> so my, you know, when came to the end of boarding school and, you know, basically my mom, you know, called me up and said, oh, by the way, you, you spent all your college money on high school. So you're going to have to figure it out on your own. Good luck. And so I did Navy ROTC and went to the University of Pennsylvania, was a physics and Russian major for reasons, you know, probably too long to discuss in the podcast. Wait, do you speak Russian? I do speak Russian. Oh, shit. <laughs> you have to speak some Russian for us before you leave today. Have you ever, have you ever seen the, uh, who was the Russian, the comedian? Oh, he's not Russian. He well, he's not Russian, but Bert, he Bert went. Kreischer? Yeah, yeah. But have you ever seen it? And so he goes, he, he talks about his time in college. He took a Russian class and he pretty much bullshitted his way through this class. And they take a field trip over to Russia. Mm-hmm. And what do they, what do they call him? What was the machine? Oh yeah. Yeah. He ends up getting involved in the Russian mafia. You need to check it out. Okay. That is one of the funniest <laughs> standups I've ever seen. Yeah. So good luck. It's not his latest ones, but the one prior to that. All right. You're welcome, Wildcatters. That is, that is a piece of gold right there. <laughs> you should there. check it out if you haven't seen it. Sorry. <laughs> no, I just, uh, I'm pretty fascinated by that. So definitely getting you to speak Russian before uh, we get off the podcast we'll, today. We'll put that in the notes. So, why, so, why, so in, in like one sentence, why did you choose physics and Russian? Physics, it was just something I was kind of a science geek as a kid, and I was okay. always good at it. Russian, because when I was in fourth grade, my mother told me that learning Spanish was not going to be good enough to differentiate yourself. And at that time... It was, you know, this was, you know, the early 90s. So everybody's all hot on Japanese and Russian and the Cold War is just ending. So, you know, I was like, well, I think I have a better chance of blending in in Russia than I do in Japan. So I'm going to go with Russian. Right? <laughs> so, Solid choice. Yeah. So that ended up there. So I got to college. RTC was uh, was a lot of fun and I enjoyed it. You know, did a did a couple of tours, spent a summer, you know, 
wandering around San Diego. Some are on a submarine. Some are at, an, at a helicopter squadron. At the end of it, you know, the Navy offers a really big signing bonus if you join the submarine force and go to nuclear power. So I went into the Navy nuclear power pipeline, which is kind of like a, a year and a half intense master's in nuclear engineering. Finished that, and then I went out to a submarine called the USS San Francisco, which I was a nuclear engineer and a combat officer for four years on that submarine. At the end of my four-year tour, which was very interesting and a lot, it was I had a more interesting than average first tour on a submarine, and at the end of it decided that I did not want to stay in and do my 20. So I got out after five years and had this idea that I wanted to do diplomacy, so I went to Johns Hopkins to, to study international relations, and then I discovered that the pay in international relations is kind of a travesty. Like, you, know, <laughs> I mean, the, the, you have no hope of paying off your student loans, none whatsoever. So two questions really quickly. Mm-hmm. What is it like being in a submarine underwater? I, I just imagine, I had an MRI last week, right? Okay. I'm super claustrophobic. I'm sitting in there trying not to freak out. I would imagine that I would have the same feeling, even though it's not a super tight space. So- or is it like a plane? Like, I, I'm good flying. You definitely know you're in a submarine. It's it's small and, and you, I mean, it's one of those things where you do, they do a lot of psychological testing and practical psychological screening for the year before you even get to the submarine. So if you're even remotely claustrophobic, you usually don't even make it to the door of the submarine because they try and filter people out before that. Because as you said, it can get a little claustrophobic. And if you can't get out and you freak out, it's no easy way out. Yeah, you're not escaping. <laughs> yeah, there's no, you know, it's mostly well. Does it, fe- does it, I mean, you're underwater. Does it feel like a boat? No, it's actually quite stable. So once yeah. you get below periscope depth, which is, you know, about 60 feet, mm-hmm. you go deeper than that. It's very, very stable. And it's, you know, kind of a smooth ride. The only thing you'll notice is if you're turning, but. Okay. Sorry. I'm just, we're just really curious today. We're going to talk about you, anything. Well, could, yes, I, we I wrote about. A, if you want to read more about the submarine stuff, I wrote a whole book about it. You can read it offline. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, wow. What's a book called? Where, where do you find it? It's on Amazon. It's called Making a Submarine Officer, and it's by me. Wait, hold on. By me. <laughs> Making a Submarine Officer by Alex Fleming. Colin's making a note. Let's put that link in the show notes so everybody can check it out. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What was your second question, Jake? You had a second question. First oh, it wasn't question even was... a question. I was just going to say that, fun fact, I'm related to Johns Hopkins, the one who actually founded it. No kidding. My my family did this. You lie about the dumbest shit sometimes. Dude, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. <laughs> my family did this genealogy thing, and there was a Hopkins who came over in the Mayflower, and essentially every, all the most of the Hopkins in the U.S. are actually related to that single one. So you're, you're like a daughter of the American Revolution? Pretty much, man. It's cool. <laughs> Just a fun fact. This, this episode's full of all kinds of interesting things. So, okay, so you get out you get out of the Navy. You go to John, John Hopkins. Hopkins. Yep, and then Then I, I applied to get in. So I decided I needed to, to have a better starting salary coming out of grad school. Mm-hmm. And so I applied and got in to, to get my MBA at, at Wharton. And so I went up to Wharton. And as a veteran, you arrive at Wharton, and basically the, the veterans pull you aside and be like, all right, dude, if you want to pay off your student loans, you're going to go consulting or banking. And so I was like, well, banking, that sounds a lot like being on a submarine. So I (laughs) I think I'm not going to do that. So I went down the consulting pathway and, you know, was cornered in a room in a recruiting event by a partner who's like, you don't know this, but you're going to be great at operations consulting. I'm like, okay. Then he handed me another beer and took about three or four beers before I accepted the job. And there we go. And so I I graduated from Wharton. I majored in finance because I didn't want to spend the rest of my life explaining to people why I went to Wharton and didn't major in finance. Mm -hmm. And then graduated from that. 
And then my first, you know, typical consulting story, your first week in consulting, you know, you get the, you, there's always the stories about getting called on Friday afternoon and then you're going to go to a city you've never been to with a team you've never met to a company you've never heard of. So my first week in consulting, get a call at 5 p.m. on Friday, this partner I've never met, he's like, Congrats, you know, welcome to the firm, I'm going to need you to come down on Monday to Houston and help me out in an oil field service company. I was like, oil field services, great, what's that? And, and he's like, well, we'll figure it out. And so and he's like, you come to this company called Halliburton. Just, you know, here's how you get there. I'll see you on Monday morning. And so book a flight. And I came down and, you know, kind of a, a six-week gig turned into a two-month gig, turned into a five-month gig, turned into like a three-year gig. And so I had the opportunity in my in, in my time at, at Halliburton to go around and spend time and a lot of time in completion tools, work on sort of a major the transformation program that was battle red if you if you follow that sort of thing. Then I got an opportunity to work at Drillbit and Services and Sperry for a little while. And then I ended up and spent the last year and a half in production enhancement working on the delivery of chemicals to frac sites. And this was back in you know, 2010 when we're still kind of figuring all this out. Yeah. So for, so for the people who are listening who don't really understand, and I, I, it took me a while to actually understand this myself, why do companies like Halliburton hire consulting firms to have you guys come and do things rather than doing the things themselves? So people hire consulting firms for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's just flex capacity, right? Yeah. Which is we just don't have the people to do it. We don't have the skills to do it internally. We just need some help temporarily. Yep. Some people hire consultants because it's easier for an external person to have an unpopular opinion. If you're trying, if you're yep. a leader and you're trying to conserve your political capital inside an organization, some people hire consultants so they have somebody to blame if it goes bad. But most most of the people I work for, it's honestly, you know, sources of new ideas, sources of rapid flex talent. Like if you need. A, you need to, you know, I need to do this to go and I need to go fast. I want to hire people to do it. I want it to be an internal skill, but I don't have time to do that right now. And you can land a team of five people on Monday. Mm -hmm. And then something that started happening a lot more is in the oil and gas industry is, you know, my talent pool is a lot more of the, I guess we'll call it the, the younger generation talent pool. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for a source of talent, you know, and you've got you've got an organization, you don't have you have a problem holding on to high potentials and you really need to just find I, look, I just need some smart people who I can put on this and have them work on it for six months. And, you know, I just don't have those kind of skills internally. And so and, and you know, the the goal for all of us is to is to help our clients and make an impact. And so it's generally a symbiotic relationship and these companies wouldn't exist if, if people didn't use it. You know, there's a lot of other situations like a merger and acquisition where you're trying mm -hmm. to keep a clean team and you don't want your employees to to be kind of, you know, involved in the process. So lots of other transactions or situations, system integration projects. So, you know, if you're if you're doing a major system change out and you don't have any of those skills internally, it's, you know, you use flex capacity, use consultants to kind of move through it because, you know, there's a lot of perspective you get when you move from company to company to company. And you start to see there's a lot of, you know, sort of breadth of exposure you get that when you get right down to it, people have gone, have gone up through one company or a few companies, they've really only seen the way it's done there or yep. the way it's done a few places. And it's, it's, it's pretty valuable to have somebody who can come in and say, you know, all right, let's look at this in the grand scheme of things, or let's figure out what's, what's the best practice even, you know, outside of your industry so that you're not reinventing the wheel or doing things the hard way just because you've never done it before. Great answer. 
Great answer. All right. So back, back to what you're saying. It was 2010. Yeah, 2010. So so after after three to four years at, on the ground at Halliburton, I kind of came out and they're like, oh, great. You're an oil and gas guy. And you're a fracking guy too because you've, you've been to a frack site. Because <laughs> you've been to a frack site. <laughs> and I'm like, so, so, you know, well, and it was funny, right? And I do, I do not claim to be a field person, but <laughs> in consulting, you know, having, having been to several frack sites and having been to several drilling sites at all, still puts you, you know, with an experience set that is beyond many consultants out there in the world. Yeah, you've seen it and felt it, right? Yeah. And so so I so I I kind of, so in consulting I'm considered a field guy. I would not <laughs> be considered a field guy by oil and gas people. <laughs> but it's a little, you know, you got to and and that's the thing about oil and gas consulting, right? Is there's consulting in oil and gas is different because you have to bring an amount of street cred to the situation. I cannot bring a 23-year-old art history major into the C-suite of an oil company and say, they're going to figure out all your problems. It just doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? I, I So part of my job has been you find teams of people in consulting firms, you give them experiences. I had a young manager this year. I was had the privilege of being able to take her out into North Dakota. We were doing a project for an E&P company and take her in a single day. We were literally able to hit like a drilling rig and a frack site and a gas plant and, you know, a, a gathering facility and a pipeline terminal and all this. And I, I, you know, got her in her coveralls and walked around them. At the end of the day, I turned around. I'm like, all right, congratulations. You've now been to more of the oil field than like 95% of consultants. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so I, I take – and so finding those people who can be field credible and headquarters credible – is hard to do. And it's something that involves kind of cultivation and talent cultivation. It's important too. I mean, one time Jake and I were talking about how these tech companies that are coming into the space, like you need to be out in the field, just to understand what it's like out there, mm -hmm. right? Just to kind of bring everything full circle and be able to understand everything from end to end. I think mm -hmm. that's extremely important. I mean, it's hard to help a company, you know, an OFS company, if you've never even seen what their work environment is or, mm -hmm. you know, what they actually do. So I think that's pretty important. We made the mistake. It was early on in my oil and gas career. We were at GDS and we spent a year or a better part of a year building mobile field data capture software so you can capture gauges and pressures and all sorts of stuff, run tickets. And we built it to be native to tablets and phones and stuff. And we mm -hmm. just did at that time neither one of us had the field exposure and we just didn't understand the demographic that we were dealing with. We didn't understand pumpers, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't understand just the nature of being out there and just how dirty it is. Like you're not going to take a thousand dollar tablet and just get all sorts of oil and dirt and <laughs> dope, all sorts of stuff over it. So, and so we wasted long story short, we wasted an entire year and tons of money mm -hmm. on something that wasn't even viable in the first place. You yeah. know? And so that was a very <laughs> valuable lesson. Well, it was an amusing, you know, my first time in the oil field, you know, I, the first time I went out to the field was I went up to El Reno, Oklahoma and stayed in the, the Best Western in El Reno, which is- Classy. Uh, I've been there. Very, it's very, it's very yeah. classy hotel. <laughs> and in that first four days on a frack site, we were, we, were, we were testing a field delivery scanner, which was an iPhone app. So this was right after Halberton had made their big push, like we're going to iPhones. And so we, so in that four days, you know, I think the reason I kind of liked it is there was in, in those four days, there was an earthquake, there was, you know, a tornado and there was so much flooding that the company man's sewage tank floated down the road. That's why I hate, that's why I hate Oklahoma. Every time I'm up there, it's an earthquake, tornado, you know, some hundred year flood. There, there's you something should, every, well, sing, uh, every single day. Every it seems day. like it's yeah. one of our lease roads right now that we have to spend you, thousands of dollars. Talking about that. Yeah, it is. It's washed out again. Mm -hmm. 
there we go. So, so that was, that was, and those four days, I'm like, this is awesome. This is great. I love this. <laughs> and then, well, so then it was funny, you know, so you, there, the big concern from the corporate change of was guys, well, we need to make sure these guys know how to use an iPhone. And I'm like, first of all, if Steve Jobs was alive today, he would literally die if you told him you have to go teach somebody to use an iPhone, <laughs> right? Because that is like totally against it. But yes, I will send a team to go out and make sure the guys at the site know how to use an iPhone. So I pull up the site and, you know, go into the, into the, the frack trailer, you know, hand the guys the phone, kind of give them the basics. And in the time, and then they're like, well, why don't you go walk around the site? We'll, we'll start working. We'll, we'll start, you know, trying to see if we know how this phone works. In the 10 minutes it took them to walk around the site and come back to the trailer, they had changed the background image to pornography. <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, so somebody somewhere knows how this phone works. Man, so. I could not remember who told me that story. I've said I've, I've said that story at some point, and I'm like, man, I can't remember who told me that, but I know I didn't make it up. Now, <laughs> now I remember. So, so I, I was like, all right, so you guys aren't as digitally mute as <laughs> as the corporate headquarters might imagine. So. so in 2000, you know, 2010 obviously is kind of right when uh, Shell started taking off. So exciting time. Everything's running and gunning back then, you know, 2010 to 2014. Everyone's just popping holes in the ground, fracking. So yep. I'm sure you were, you were busy during that time. And I'm sure you've been busy during this time as well for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what were you, it sounds like then you were helping with some uh, technological integrations, you know. Well, with, it was really, it was how do we go faster, right? At that point, it was like faster, 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 more, more, more. You know, this was just when people were saying, hey, we don't really need, if we're using 4,000 gallons of chemicals, we do not need to send it in tote tanks anymore, right? We do not need to be moving, you know, thousands of tote tanks one at a time if I can just send a, a tanker directly from the chemical supplier to the frac site. Mm -hmm. So this was just the beginning of trying to get that manufacturing model and the volume yeah. It was only it was the very beginning of multi-well pads, right? It was just like how do we go faster? How do we how do we do more and more and more? There was not a lot of concern around the cost structure. Mm -hmm. And it was just just do more, do faster, like, you know, let's go. And so so for the first four years in the industry, people asked me what I did. I was like, well, I help people frack faster, right? And so and then, you know, we had you know, there was the sort of the ups and downs, and then we got to 2014, and then, you know, what's happened since in the five years since then, there's been an incredible amount of pain pushed put on the oil field services industry, probably even more than the E&P companies. Because if you look at, so if you look at like the revenue of these companies, 2010 was about the same amount of revenue as there is now, which is interesting if you look at the graph. But the actual earnings are significantly lower now. And how that's happening because most of the E&P companies right now, their, their sort of supply chain strategy is we need to decouple our cost structure from the movement of hydrocarbon prices, mm -hmm. right? We no longer want to go up and down because if we're going up, we're going to keep it. We're not going to give it to our suppliers. Mm -hmm. And so now there you've seen this separation where the E&P companies who are doing better, doing a little bit better. But none of that is passing through the oil field service companies, and they are not able to recover. So the things that happened in 2014, 2015, typically, you know, hey, you need to cut your prices 25% or you're going to lose the business. You know, all the things that normally happen. So all the low-hanging fruit has really been picked around headcount reductions, around capital reduction. And now we're at the point where we're like, all right, we've done everything we've always done in these downturns, and it's five years later. And it's not getting better. Mm -hmm. and That's it's, an interesting. So when you, 
I mean, it's been a broken system, right? Because you, you've had a direct correlation between EMPs and OFS and, and commodity prices. So when you have $100 oil, EMPs are, are making money or, you know, a lot of revenue and the OFS companies are coming in and their prices are going up too. So you're having that that transfer of money from the EMPs to the OFS. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, that's cutting into the margins of the EMPs. And then when commodity prices come down, EMPs aren't profitable because obviously they're dependent on commodity prices. Prices and then the OFS feels it too. Mm-hmm. And so you've always had, you know, this, this correlation between them. And then you look at EMPs, so like, okay, well, if we can decouple, you know, oil prices and OFS and actually focus on generating profit for our company, mm-hmm. great. But now the OFS company gets screwed, right? They're not getting paid. And then it also becomes a, a problem where the EMP, I know this, I, I worked 10 years on the service side. I know what the EMPs want. They want the best service, the best equipment at the cheapest price. Mm-hmm. And now it's you're putting to the bottom. Now you're putting all this downward pressure on these OFS companies and you're not, you know, they have no margins. They're not getting paid. Mm-hmm. And you still demand that they have the best service and the best equipment. And it's like, where do we yeah. we we're, we're bottoming out. Where do we get yeah. the resources from? Well, and, and and what's this so what this means for the whole industry is the oil field services industry is really their fundamental cost structure has not shifted yet, has not, has not been adjusted for this new reality. And so there's a military expression called, called fighting the last war. So, you know, when we were in Vietnam, we were fighting Korea. When we were in the Gulf War, we were fighting Vietnam. So militaries always struggle with how do you stop fighting the last war and start fighting the next war. And so oilfield services as an industry, they are really set up to fight the last war. Right, they have their cost structures, all of that, all of that has been created, and the operational structures, and the management systems, and all the in 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 the built-in cost systems in the industry, are have not been adjusted for this new reality. Mm-hmm. And what's that's meaning is, I mean, if you look at the oil field service companies, they're not doing well. Right, they're they're not, you know, they're struggling with cash flow. They're not able to recover pricing or, or do what they've done in the past. Even, and I don't think we would call this an upturn. It's more like an up an up angle, right? And and we're moving to so, the we're moving, but <laughs> yeah, we're moving somewhere. But but they, you know, it's there's there's this attachment to the way things were, and it's been very hard to get companies to look to do sort of the navel gazing necessary to say, all right, how do I design a cost structure that's going to work not only for the next ten years, but if you start talking about you know energy transition and you know the sort of the twenty to thirty year potential mm-hmm. of the industry, I mean there is. There's that. That's kind of one of those where we're just gonna we're gonna do the flamingo approach to that one, or yeah. the, the ostrich approach. Right? Just try try not to think about it. I like I like the last war analogy. It actually kind of reminded me when I worked at Inventure. Some of our guys ran expendable casing over in Russia, and they said a lot of their oil field service trucks were old Cold War retrofitted vehicles. And now I'm bringing it full circle because Alex can speak Russian, and so just tying tying the story together here. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, and I think the the oil field service companies, what do they, you know, what do they need to be doing is you need to you need to look hard and say what are our differentiated capabilities. And what are we investing in? And really, it's how do you allocate? It's not, you know, nowadays, like I said, the, all the easy stuff has been done. This is not about blanket headcount reduction. This is not about just, you know, cutting capital budgets, right? It has to be how do we make sustainable intrinsic changes to the cost structures of the industry and, and really make sure we are investing in our differentiated capabilities 
and anything that is not a truly differentiated capability or it's something where we just have to have table stakes, we don't need to invest in it. And that's the other thing about sort of recovering petroleum engineers, which is hard, which is no engineer ever wants to be just average at something, right? Yeah. Oh. And and so, you know, take going to a company and be like, yeah, you know, you don't really need to be good at that. You need to be okay at that. And mm-hmm. because the difference between being okay at something and being top quartile from a cost standpoint is extreme, right? And so looking across the entire organization and saying, how do we set up a sustainable cost structure? And then how do we take and make decisions around portfolio and how we approach sales and pricing, which the the history of pricing and sales in the industry is is pretty broken, right? Because you know oil field services sales it's it's not a, it's not the golf course steak dinner you know helicopter hunting trip method, right? You just can't do that anymore. It's when you think about how pricing is done and how commercial arrangements are approached. There's a lot of stuff that's just happened ad hoc, mm-hmm. and you know hey we're going to price it this way because we priced it that way the last time. But if you look across the whole world, you know the same thing is priced differently in seven different countries and the customers know it better than us because they're going to the other country to get a price for our stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and so really bringing discipline around commercial and pricing and then how do you translate all of that into an operating model? And so I for, forgive me for using a consulting buzzword. The term operating model just means how you link your strategy to your execution. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have a strategy and what is your structure your management reporting, your operating rhythms, which just means how do you, you know, your meetings, all that. How do you connect the strategy to actual execution and that operating model? Many companies in this industry did not ever sit down and really say, you know, what do we want to be when we grow up, right? And what is, what do we need to be in how, and have an intentional design of the operating model? We put a lot of faith in, you know, very good leaders and they have set off their kingdoms. And when times are good, everything was working. They were making money. Great. But now it's, you know, you're looking hard and realizing that a lot of these fundamental assumptions and structures have never been challenged. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of, you know, planning and a lot of oil field services companies is like, well, our planning horizon's like 18 months, basically. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, and that's compared to other industries, that's pretty, it's pretty narrow because, you know, how do you do effective long-term planning and integrated business planning and thinking about capital assets and cash flow if you really only have an effectively an 18 month planning horizon. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the, the entire industry, and you guys talk about this a lot, is struggling with how do we make digital financially real, right? You know, there's a lot of people, well, we're top of the hype cycle. Everybody's talking about it. I think, mm-hmm. I think machine learning is right, right at the top of the hype cycle. If I hear digital transformation one more time. <laughs> exactly, oh right? God. Digital yeah, so transformation. So the, the oil field service industry is struggling with that just as much, if not more, than the rest of the industry and saying, you know, what do we do with this and how does it, how do we get this into something that is going to help us get cash flow yeah. or increase productivity or work for our customers? And how do we, how do we make this real in the industry? Because if you get right down to it, and this is the same discussion you guys were having with the ENP side is, has anybody actually stripped down an ENP organization and said, what if we built this again right now using all the tools at our disposal? The organization would look very different. Mm-hmm. Right? And the same thing with the oil field services, right? If you strip down the entire organization and say, how would I rebuild this from scratch if I didn't have anything right now, that organization would look very, very different. So when, you know, you talk about traditional cycles and the actions that these OFS companies take. So 
you know, cutting CapEx is easy, right? You know, or, or well, it's, you e- know. it's easy until your assets start to fall apart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, not investing in new equipment or laying off, you know, layoffs of your workforce, you know, you can do these things, but it doesn't, it doesn't address the fundamental problem in the cost structure, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but I, I think about it and think about it out in the Permian Basin. I don't know how many wireline companies you have out there, but shit, it, probably 20. Mm-hmm. And it's a very commoditized service, right? What's your what's your competitive advantage or what differentiates you from the other 19 wireline companies to where you can get some kind of edge? And, you know, for me, I, I don't know what that is you know you can you can lay off your guys to bring down you know your payroll and but at at that point you know what else what else can you do and i think that there is room to look at internally you know same conversation with emps how do you make your operations and personnel more efficient with technology i think that that could apply to ofs too but is that something that you guys see that is is anyone looking to digital solutions internally to figure out if that can help them gain efficiency? Well, so there's when we talk about you know digital solutions, you know the you know a lot of people ask me, and I spend you know a lot of time talking about you know what is the purpose of like why why are we even talking about this? What should we be getting out of digital solutions? And there's a there's you know the way I explain it to people is you know the goal of digital solutions in the end is you have physical processes, you have the information movement about them and then you're making you're doing analysis and you're making decisions and you're doing planning on top of all that and right now moving the information so moving between here's a physical process i'm capturing the information about it i'm analyzing it and then i need to make a decision about it and feed that back into the physical process that the the latency of moving between those layers is has been very wide and i think that the core value of all these digital solutions is reducing the latency of those processes getting mm-hmm. closer to the cycles of analysis so no so you're not you're not waiting because you know if you ask many you know many oil and gas companies oil field service companies you know well how much money have you spent as of today right now mm-hmm. right you know the CFO could tell you well I'm pretty sure what we spent 60 days ago I'm moderately sure what we spent 30 days ago, but I haven't the faintest clue how much of my opex and capex budget is out the door as of this exact moment yeah. Right. And the ability to bring that latency down of those, the movement between the physical world and the virtual world and decisions and analysis about it, that's really, I think, what is going to drive the best usage yeah. of the solution. So I think that, you know, there, there are some cool startups in the space, you know, companies like ClearGistics, Engage Mobilize, Data Gumbo, some, some other, you know, they all, they all do different things. Rig Callout that, do exactly what you do. How, how can we shrink shrink this down to where we have less latency in the data and actually be able to make more real-time mm-hmm. decisions? Because, you know, same for EMPs, OFS, how much, what's your P&L like today? Are you making money today? And is, one I, of the things, I just don't think you can get an answer. One of the things I used to do walking into EMPs whenever we're talking about GDS or WellHub and say, give me a list of your 10 most profitable walls. Give me a list of your 10 least profitable walls. And they say, oh, I can't do that. Give me about two weeks, and I think we might have something. And by the time we get it, it's not going to be accurate anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, or so, I, so I have a client where I said the same question is, can you tell me what what is your profitability of your product lines in these geographies? And it was a very, very difficult question to answer. It took like yeah. 10 weeks to arrive at an answer that maybe was competent. 
So yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think honestly, what it really boils down to is it boils down to organization, mm-hmm. like like it starts with personal organization, mm-hmm. right? Of keeping track of everything, and I think companies it's very hard to do that as you you're setting up a company, it's very easy to kind of let that fall to the wayside and be like, ah, we need to check. We'll, we'll catch up with it later. And then 10 years later, still you're, same you're a big organization, but now you have way more people and it's just completely think, blown Think up. about like simple, simple SaaS platforms like Notion. Like Notion could completely change the internal operations of a company. It's changed and, our operations, hasn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. and no one uses things. No one uses Silicon Valley type project management. And have, uh, have you seen any OFS company used a, a Silicon Valley type project management software, like an Asana, a Trello, a Basecamp, Notion, something along those lines? That is Jira. I mean, that's but that's for developers more. Yeah. So, specifically. I, so the answer is no. I haven't seen it being used effectively to actually run a core operation. No. And that so just blows it's my it's mind. It's interesting. I mean, yeah. these are enterprise products, right? I no. just, I, I, I strongly believe that you cannot effectively run really any organization that's doing anything meaningful over 10 people without having something to track it because then you have nothing to measure against. There's so many things like Notion, for example, has become, it's become our project management software. Should Notion should sponsor us for this. We might have an affiliate link or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You know, it's become our, our internal wiki. So mm-hmm. if you have questions about things like if you set up a website, where is it hosted? What is the user name? What is the login? Things like that, that get out of hand, especially with SaaS tools, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine a company like Halliburton, imagine how many things that people are paying for and that information that you have to keep track of and all the information and notes and stuff that engineers mm-hmm. have taken over the years that just gets lost when somebody gets fired. Well, and, and you know, there's, and like I said, I don't want to poo-poo on, you know, digital solutions because I think I think there's incredible value there. But when you get right down to it, the, the things the oil field services companies right now need to start with are actually, there's there's things they need to do before that. So back to your yeah. question about you're an oil field service, you're a wireline company, you're like 20 other wireline companies. What do you, what do, you do to make sure you have positive cash flow? The one, well, so one, you get very, like, you know, Henry Hines, the founder of the Hines Ketchup Company, said to do a common thing uncommonly well leads to success. Mm-hmm. You can either decide you are going to be the leanest, meanest wireline company, lowest cost structure, you're going to do it better than anybody else, and you're going to be able to get paid premium prices for it. Or this, so the other thing is you can look at adjacencies, which is, okay, if if we are not going to get the growth we want, and a lot of the oil field service companies right now, if you're looking at potential growth rates in the industry, you know, 6 to 8% growth, that's probably about what you're going to get in most of the oil field parts of the industry. And and if you're – so if your stock price reflects that people think you're getting 12% growth and you're only working in oil and gas – I got news for you. At some point, there's going to be a correction of that, mm-hmm. and it's and it's going to and it's going to hurt your your shareholder value, your stock price, and leadership is going to be held accountable. So if you so you have to really sit down and have very good focus on what are the markets we're in, where are we playing, why are we in these pieces of the portfolio, and are we going to get the kind of growth that our either owners expect or our investors expect out of it? Because if you're not looking hard at your portfolio and saying where do we play? And then, you know, where are we playing? And then do we have the right and ability to win in those markets? If you haven't, because a lot of people are like, well, we're a wireline company. We're always a wireline company. Why should we ever consider doing anything else? But to your point, if there's an adjacency where they have skills that can logically move into kind of an adjacent market and wireline may, may not be a great example. So like, you know, if there's a company that's working in, 
you know, let's call it mm, subsea robotics, right? Or robot, you know, robotics at, at well sites, mm-hmm. right? And they ask, you know, all right, we're really, really good at robotics. You know, what adjacent industries or what adjacent markets are very close that we could use our skills in that potentially might have higher growth rates in the future? And do we do we double down on those investments, right? And you have to make some tough strategic decisions about do we stay exactly what we've always been doing or do we look for adjacencies? Do we look for new revenue streams in our data, in our information? Do we try and monetize our assets in a different way or even get rid of our assets and like literally is, you know, right now, you know, if you're if you're having trouble getting good cash flow out of an, a high cost asset fleet, you know, why not why not take that whole fleet and sell it to somebody and basically say, all right, we're gonna sell it and lease it back, but you guys are you you are a company that's gonna run only this asset class for us and you can run it well. And then we can, you know, get massively reduce the organization we're having to deal with. And so there's there's a lot of you you have to start with the intrinsic questions because as I said, all the all the low hanging fruit of mostly like I said the people running these companies know what they're doing. They've done they've done this a while. All they've they've pulled all the levers that they've always pulled, and they've pretty much pulled them as hard as they can. All that's left is looking at fundamental operating model structures and portfolio choices and making some very difficult decisions about how you create your operating model and then doing it in the context of the tools that are available to us. But no, and you know, and I've been on a lot of different software projects, a lot of system integration project. No, no software has ever solved a business problem, right? It's the the model and the people and the process, and yes, the technology enables it, but it doesn't. So, you know, you can have the best tools in the world, but if nobody uses it, mm-hmm. I mean, that's always been you know the biggest struggle. Struggle is to get engagement. It's hard to get engagement for a new company. It's even because especially when you're merging different work styles and experiences and ages and you know, demographics and whatnot. And so it's hard to get everybody to kind of buy into something that you got to have. I mean, the fundamentals of the business model have to be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Rice Energy did it well. And I've, I've said this many times, but they instituted the right policies and their policies, policies centered around, maybe not even in policies, but they didn't send any emails and all their communication took place within the platform that they built that managed everything. Mm-hmm. And so nothing got done unless you communicated with the executives and your managers through the platform. And so it kind of just reinforced that type of engagement. And as a result, they built one of the most efficient organizations that I had ever seen. Mm -hmm. And Salesforce thanks them. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Going back to your comment about Heinz, that's, I feel like this, you know, the, the theory of doing a better job and charging a premium just doesn't work in oil and gas. I mean, it's just fundamentally not built that way. These are $100,000 jobs, OFS jobs that are awarded to the lowest bidder, right? To be honest, when it comes time to bidding out a job, they don't give a shit. They only give a shit about job performance when you leave a tool down hole or, you know, something of that nature. But like you could own an OFS company and it doesn't matter how hard you work, you got different risk exposures, you know, having the best people. Mm-hmm. That's a hard game to play because guess what? OFS hands bounce around. And so they're going to, if someone, someone I mean, down the street's paying a dollar more an hour, they're going for that dollar an hour. Well, so actually now the total headcount in the oil and gas industry is actually now below where it was in 2009. What's so the total headcount? I don't know the number off the top of my head, but, but it's, it's actually, below, it's below yeah. where it so, was in yeah, 2009. So we've already wow. cut, like there's already less people according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics in, in oil and gas now than there was in 2009. Wow. So we've already cut 
and and you know as you guys know it's it's very hard to get new talent in we have mm -hmm. a lot of talent that's been going out the door we've got a lot of very experienced people who've retired and taken their knowledge with them mm -hmm. and you know and i think you guys have talked about in some of the previous podcasts we're gonna have a lot of problems with people who are having to relearn things just because we've we haven't captured that knowledge we didn't capture the knowledge yeah we lost we lost the tribe knowledge yeah so what are you seeing you know one Y'all's clients, I'm sure you deal with a lot of big OFS, you know, the Halliburton, Slumberjays of the world. Are any of the smaller OFS companies out in the Permian, are they engaging guys like Deloitte or do they, you know, are they still just fighting, fighting the good fight by themselves? Well, so one, you know, the, and, and this is something where, you know, big consulting is definitely the, the price point makes it hard for smaller organizations to, to stomach it unless you've got like a private equity firm who who kind of and, and I've had this happen where you know a private equity firm says we are hiring you go in and and do it but when you get right down to it there's there's a certain size of an organization you have to be at before really big consultants are going to help you or even be feasible with your budgets right and then there's also you know we we in consulting, so consulting is being impacted as much, especially oil and gas consulting, has being impacted as much as anybody else by this because we've had to come up with very, very new ways commercially to engage with our customers around incentive structures, value-based deals. I mean, these are not the days, you know, there's, there's a lot of heartburn in the industry now about paying sort of, I guess we'll call it the big strategy consulting mm -hmm. rates. And we really have had to get very, very especially in oil and gas, very, very good about communicating. Here's the value. Here's why it's worth it to, to use us for this. Here's what you're going to get out of it. And, and here's why, you know, and like I said, it's not, it's not like telling a company you couldn't do this, right? It's not saying, you know, yes, given enough time, you, you're, you get a lot of smart people. They're all engineers. You could probably figure this out on your own. The reason you use people like us is as an accelerator or so that you, you don't have to relearn everything from the ground up. And so, but we've, we've had to bring a lot of creativity and commercial models to ensure that we're very clearly communicating. Here's the value we're creating and here's why it's useful to have us around. Yeah. There's some interesting variables that go into this too. I was talking with one of the big service companies and they're telling me that they had sold their pressure pumping service or their unit out in West Texas. Mm -hmm. And like, it was just too hard to compete with the small guys. They were going to church with the clients and getting their business just off of personal relationships. And for us, we just couldn't, we couldn't compete with them, not even on a, you know, on a cost basis. But the so, problem, those mom, the mom and pops though, they're, and the problem with the smaller companies is they still are, they, when you don't have scale, it's very, very hard to get the kind of cost efficiencies that the big companies yep, get. Exactly. So it's, you still, you, even though, like I said, that, that will work for a while, but if you want to build a sustainable organization and a cost structure that allow you to have positive cash flow and sustain it, it's very, very, you got to be really, really lucky. Yeah. Or, or really, really good. But it, it kind of makes it, I mean, to be blunt, it makes it a pain in the ass for different companies, right? Because you've got, if you're a big company, you have the skill to be able to drive down your costs. And so mm -hmm. you can be competitive, but then you got this, you know, little mom and pop company that's, you know, going to church with old Joe and they get the work. And so you've got, you've got the skill to perform it on a cost basis, but then you've got this problem where you're not getting the work because of this relationship. And then like this service company, you end up selling your, your pressure pumping unit. And then all of a sudden the small guy, he doesn't have the skill to continue operating like that. And so then, you know, he disappears or 
the big service company comes back behind and, you know, acquires them later on down the road. But it's just kind of this vicious, you know, back and forth between big, bigger companies and smaller companies, it seems. Well, and I think there's the other implication of that is, and, and you know, the oil field has this, this sort of the, I guess we'll call it the the wildcat founder mythology. Digital wildcat, right? yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, and, and that is founded that. But at the same point, and you, so we were talking in the in the pre-show about sort of the ethics and the environmental and sustainability of it, you know, there's a lot of those small companies that have probably not made the best decisions for oil and gas and our relationship with society and doing things sustainably. Mm-hmm. And, the, and so they were able to keep their cost structures low because probably some corners being cut. Right. Yeah. And in the end, we as an industry are, you know, within a generation of of, of sort of facing an energy transition. And, and the question will be is, do, do we as an industry have the moral authority to continue to be a gas and renewables industry, even though, you know, we didn't do an incredible job in the last hundred years being conscious of our communities and the environment, or we could have done a better job. And, and how do we, how do we make sure that, you know, yes, those, the, you know, uh, you know, Joe, Joe, Joe guy in West Texas, he, he makes his millions and, you know, his kids are set up. That's great. But, you know, have we as an industry earned the right to continue, you know, being a part of the energy mixture in the future. And, and I think that's, that's, that's the counter argument is, you know, yes, you'll be threatened by that, but I think in the long run, you know, doing it right and spending the cost it takes to do it right has value. Yeah. And and I think that that's something we're going to have to demonstrate more and more as we go into the future. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, Alex, appreciate you coming on the show, man. This is super informative. I really like hearing about what's going on with the OFS companies. I think, you know, we're in challenging times, probably going to be in challenging times for the next year or so. And to see, you know, what kind of uh, creative solutions people come up with, you know, yourself included, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Kind of, it's like, you know, sitting at the uh, Coliseum in Rome, just seeing who's going to like battle it out and survive till the I'm end. Saying, everybody, you know, the media keeps saying that it's a shale bust and, and maybe 1.0 is, but I think it's, I think from the ashes is going to rise this, you know, shale 2.0 is a phoenix, you know, and, and I think we have to, first off, and oil's not going anywhere, but I think these trying times, just like we saw with, you know, in, in 14, you know, all the way through 15 and 16, forces people to become innovative. Right. Right? And, and it forces us all to develop new skill sets. So, yeah. you know, I wouldn't, I would be, I would be ashamed if I didn't, I didn't plug. So I, you know, I, this year I, I decided I wanted to go learn more about the land and legal part of this and, you know, all of the, all the stuff around land processes and contracts and all that. So when, went to uh, the University of Oklahoma to their, their energy masters for legal studies and, and just finishing that up. And it was a fascinating program, but also, you know, did the machine learning stuff. And, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, what, what we as individuals can do is make sure that, you know, the leadership that, that we're going to bring to the industry and as we all move around and I'm sure, you know, at some point, you know, all of us are going to, you know, be in different places and you guys, when you're, when you're running your E&P company, right, making sure that you're, you're bringing a br- more of a breadth of experience. And, and like I said, not to, not to down on petroleum engineers. I love them. You know, there's a lot of them, they're recovering, they're out there, but we just need to, we need to bring more breadth into our operational leadership roles. And, you know, some people, there's, there's a lot of buzzwords around, oh, we don't need a chief digital officer. What are, what are you guys talking about? But, but it's, it's bringing a broader perspective to the leadership of the industry, Absolutely. I think is going to be important to help us build a sustainable pathway. Absolutely. I think, I think more and more engineers have to become 
more multidisciplinary, right? Well, there's a there's a question on Twitter the other day talking about should rock jocks be running oil companies, and you know should should it be the rock jocks or the finance guys? And I was like, well, that's a pretty binary way to look at it. What if you know the future we're looking at a mixture of rock jocks, finance guys, but also guys that understand technology, mm-hmm. and you have a well versed management team that's running your EMPs and OFS. No. Well, and, and how do you place those skills on the board of directors, right? Because they, and this is so you you mentioned you know, the rice the rice brothers who are you know having their they're living out the great experiment of the collision of the two cultures right now yeah. in Pittsburgh, right? And so you know, but it's at the same point, a lot of the companies you encounter, you you look at the management team, they're trying, they're doing their best, but the board of directors is still just the same group of you mm-hmm. know, 50 to 60 per something people with 10 years of experience in, in you know, a publicly traded company. And there's a lot of resistance to change ingrained in even the boards, right, in their yeah. structures. And so not only how do we bring that to the management team, but how do we encourage you know, the board of directors, the the private equity firms who are funding these companies that you need to bring a broader perspective, even in even in the supervision and the supervision of the leadership, so that you're you're allowing the good ideas that are below to not get tamped down. There's a there's a great pamphlet written in World War II about it. So the Germans wrote a pamphlet on how you slow down bureaucracies. Like literally it was a pamphlet of how do you disrupt a an enemy by adding bureaucracy to their companies, right? And it's literally a script of what happens in oil field services companies, right? <laughs> and because, because of, of the ways, because a lot of leaders have arrived at their place in life and they benefit from the structure and the way things are. And there's a lot of ingrained resistance to change. You've got, and it's not necessarily, it's not always this, you know, the people in the C-suite, it's that, that next level of upper and middle management and the vines that have grown throughout the organization over the years. And those, they are very, very capable of resisting change. And so if you've got that layer and the board of directors, even the most genius CEO in the world is not, is going to have a real hard time affecting change. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. I think that, you know, that statement probably covers 95 or probably even higher percentage of oil companies. So, all right, man, if someone wants to reach out to you, where do they find you at? You're on so, LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn. You know, if you search, if you Google Alex Fleming Deloitte Consulting, that's, uh, you'll find me and I'm, you know, pretty, all my email addresses are on my LinkedIn profile. So I have enough digital presence that you should be able to find me no problem. <laughs> all you got to do is Google Alex Fleming, Russian speaking badass. So that'll, that'll bring <laughs> you right up. <laughs> you know, there's, like I said, the good news about, so Alex Fleming is the, is also the name of the doctor who discovered penicillin in Scotland. Oh, nice. So it's actually kind of a little bit of a digital, digital shield. Cause if you just Google Alex Fleming, Fleming. <laughs> Alexander Fleming, the, the, the 1800s doctor comes up. That's so a good you have guy. To, that's you a good guy to get mixed one, up with. <laughs> yeah, you have to know one other piece of information. So Alex Fleming Navy or Alex Fleming, you know, Wharton or Alex Fleming Deloitte. Alex um, Fleming the machine. Yeah. <laughs> Alex Fleming, the guy who doesn't sleep because, you know, got four children under the age of seven and a, a wife who's an entrepreneur too and, you know, travel four days a week. But, you know, at least I, at least I find time to squeeze in an extra master's here or there. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're going to be busy over the next couple years for sure man so appreciate you coming on sharing your knowledge we'll have to get you back on sometime over the next year to get an update and see how things are going so thanks again happy to chat 
Awesome, guys. Reach out to Alex if you have any questions for him. He's always a great guy. We always enjoy talking to him. I'm going to mix it up this episode. Who do you guys want to see on the show or what topics do you want to see us kind of maybe gear some more shows around? I'm going to do this. Shoot me an email directly, jake at digitalwildcatters.com. Let me know. I want to hear your thoughts. We are here to serve you guys. We want to make the show as amazing as possible. We love having guys like Alex and Dan and all of our other guests that we've had on. We want to continue that trend. So just give us some quick feedback and we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Come on.